After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Ashti. And the manner pleased the king, and he did accordingly. As far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of now coming before you and fellowshipping with you around your word. Such a wonderful passage is this. Bless us, O Lord, open our eyes that we might indeed see and behold and feast upon you. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity and and with unction and grant his grace as listeners to receive and study with unction that, Lord, we would truly respond to your word as a people seeking to love and know and serve you even more. We entrust this time now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In John, we read of the death of Lazarus. Uh, You may recall the uh, account. Lazarus dies and Jesus comes. And Martha, in her grief, does not go out to Jesus for comfort initially. She goes out to Jesus to rebuke him. You recall in John 11, we read, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In essence, it's your fault. The truth be known, brothers and sisters, what she did not know, maybe you have forgotten. Jesus knew when he was ill and when he was sick, he waited two more days for him to die. And then he came. You know, that sounds awful. And do you know why he waited the two days according to the text? Because he loved Lazarus. Is that that makes sense? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. Does Jesus love you? If he tarries, are you going to die? See, brothers and sisters, when we initially look at something like this, we go, I don't understand. If he loved him, why would he have him be killed? Well, the reason why is, or why would, he, why would he, he perish? The reason why is, is because the text says, this was unto the glory of God. In other words, brothers and sisters, God's plan goes way beyond the temporal, way beyond the, the um, finite. We tend to look at life and God's workings from the perspective of this world. We're very earthy. And so we look at things and go, this doesn't make sense here. It doesn't, it doesn't bless me here. It doesn't promote my agenda here. Therefore, I don't understand what God's doing when brothers and sisters, what God's doing is exalting and glorifying himself. And the greatest blessing he could ever give to any individual is to open our eyes to behold a greater glimpse of the weightiness of his character. And that's what's going on in John chapter 11. But we look at a passage like this and, 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 and initially we see it and go, God's ways, God's workings, God's providence is mysterious to us. Why does he do the things that he does? And by providence we mean his most holy, wise, powerful, and preserving 
of this world. All his creatures and all their, their actions. So we're talking about this whole book is about God's providence, Esther. And our passage this day is, is addressing exactly John 11, the issue of the, the mystery of God's providence. And, you, and let me show you that before we dive in. Esther, you know, is one large chiasm whose focus is on chapter 6. And thus, we understand that while chapter 6 is the focus of this book, nevertheless, each of the chapters must be read and understood in light of the message, the main message of this book, which revolves around the providence, the care, the upholding of God in this world, in your life. And when we look at chapter 2, what we see is, and one other note before I, I say that, we also note that when we read narratives in Scripture, we are called by God multiple times to remember and remember what that means to remember in the bible is not to call to mind is to become a first person witness of what you read to enter in so when we're called with the table do this in remembrance of me we are called by god to not say jesus two thousand years ago died but to say Christ, or better yet, at the Passover, they wouldn't say my great-great-grandfather. They'd say I was a slave in Egypt. They were remembering. And likewise, we're called um, through this to be an eyewitness of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, likewise, we are called with this narrative to not sit back and think of something that happened 2,500 years ago at a faraway place in a far land, uh, a far. Uh, way land, but to enter into this story and to be an eyewitness of what's going on here. And if we do that in chapter two, we're going to do that revolving around the simple theme of the mystery of God's providence. There are four scenes in this chapter, and one of these scenes, only one, contains the crucial element of God's providence at this time. And this was written for us to enter in. And as we enter in, to begin looking at each scene and asking, is this the key element? Or is that the key, uh, a key element? So go with me into this chapter. So we've said before as a review, the closest genre today in our culture to Hebrew narrative, to Hebrew, is stage play. Where we're called to, to watch, observe, and for God is more inclined to show it, then say, what is God showing us here? He's showing us the key element to his providence. And what we're going to find is it's mysterious. We'd never, you'd never guess it in a thousand years. So let's enter in. We begin first with scene one, the changing of the guard when it came to the queen. Verse one, and after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, we know from, from this text that there's a four-year gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So chapter 1, whatever we read there, four years prior to chapter 2. Which means, in the intervening time, the Greco-Persian War has been fought and lost by the Persians. And in the midst of that failure, we know Ahasuerus went back to Sardis, where he spent one year, and there, all this is past history, there, he engaged in a in a um, horrible, scandalous affair with his niece in the presence of Vashti. And we know after that time, he came back home three years later 
And there it was his birthday, and his queen Vashti, as a present to him, gave him the mutilated corpse of his uh, lover's mom for her birthday. So when we read, and after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had uh, subsided and he remembered Vashti, what do you suppose he remembered about this woman? What he remembered was, this woman um, is uncontrollable. She does what she wants, when she wants, and where she wants. She's a, and for him, she's this cruel, brutal woman who, again, is uncontrollable. So his anger has long since passed from four years. But what came to mind was the realization, I've got to get a different queen. And so while she formally lost her title four years ago, we know she didn't lose her, her, her being in his presence, not as his queen, but as, as one of his concubines. Right? Well, he says it's time. So he, he consults his servants, verse 2. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, that the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may go, uh, gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the uh, custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let their uh, cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Ashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. The clear um, emphasis of this text is on the beauty of these girls. Four years later, the focus, it's referenced twice, is we're going to gather, we're going to do this gathering, and we're going to get the prettiest, most beautiful women in the kingdom, and whichever one pleases the king most, that will be the new queen. De Guide wrote, wrote these words. The original idea when Vashti was deposed and sent away from the king's presence was to find a better woman to fill her royal uh, position. By better, the king's advisors presumably meant someone more compliant than Vashti, someone who would, be, who would tow the royal line and obey her husband. Yet strangely enough, in their search for a replacement, it never seems to have occurred to those in charge to include a character assessment. Instead, only three virtues were necessary in this, in this better uh, woman. She had to be young, she had to be unmarried, i.e. a virgin, and she had to be extra, um, extraordinarily good-looking. So enter in. I hope that makes you sick to your stomach. This is sick. This is disgusting. And it ought to be. Any Jew reading this three or, or 30 or 40 years later, reading about what this, what this king did in order to get a new queen, was disgusting. Now, in Persia, at this time, many of the women going forth would have been thrilled, would have been honored, because they would have been assured food and security and protection. But that's just naivete. Um, they also would become basically little less than a, a person, seclusion, loneliness, insignificance, and a whole lot more. So reading this, we, we look at this and go, this is sick. This is disgusting. And we rightly so respond that way. Well, this is the process. Notice with me verse 12. We're going to skip down there. Now, when the, the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, that is, sleep with him, after the end of her 12 months, after, um, um, under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices, and that typically was a bath, by the way, and the cosmetics for 
uh, the woman. So these women would go through a ritual. They're already beautiful, but they're going to spend another year beautifying themselves. In the ancient world, these women would have been really thin because of food. Well, they'll spend one year fattening themselves up. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way. In the ancient world, um, large was beautiful. So they would spend one year getting larger, uh, perfuming, and all the different things that they're going to do to make themselves look beautiful. Um, And that then would lead then to verse uh, 13. The young lady, and we're talking here about a young teenager, 12 to 15 years old, would go into the king in this way, anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shaashgaz, uh, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. That's why this is so horrible. Okay, it is believed that this man had 400 women in his harem. So if you weren't remembered by name, you were not available to go marry some other man because you were his property. So you were then left in the harem. You were isolated from your family. You had no contact with the outside world. You only had as your friends the rest of the, uh, the harem. And you lived out your day, in essence, in isolation. Unless, of course, you made great friends with the other harem. Okay? Longing for one of the babies that the other women who had babies would then get privileged in treatment. Okay? So it was a horrible, horrible thing. So when we look back, this is scene one. We look at this and go, is this the means that God's going to use to preserve his people? I don't know what your initial thought is, but you're going to say, I would say, no way. Forget the story. If you don't know the story, you just look at this as if it's a first read. And you're telling me God is, there's something key here that God's going to use to protect his, his uh, people, to preserve them. It certainly is not going to be that because that's a wretched, wretched um, institution and a horrible situation. Oh, well, well, what's behind door number two? Right? We have four doors. Okay. What's behind? What's scene two? Can we go to scene two? Scene two. Verses 5 through 6, or actually 5 through 11, a tale of two compromisers. First, Mordecai, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei. Shimei is the one who cursed David. The son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. All right, this is, with this, we are introduced to Mordecai. And Mordecai's name, as you know, came from Marduk, the chief Babylonian god. Now, in the ancient world, you had multiple names. Jews had multiple names in Persian, Babylon. For example, Daniel's name means God is my judge. That's the Hebrew, Donael. But the, the uh, uh, Persian or the Babylonian, his name was Beltisar-Uther. Okay, or as we have it uh, uh, written for us, Belteshazzar. And that word meant, may the wife of the god Bel protect the king. So they all had multiple names. And for the Jews, typically those secular names meant nothing. Except in the case of Paul, who preferred his Roman name, which meant small, over his Hebrew name Saul. Okay, but for most people, the secular name meant nothing. Except, as I argued... In, I mean, the introduction, except for Malachi or for uh, Mordecai. Mordecai, 
seems to be, his name, the, the idea of being Marduk, he seems to be the one who sort of embodies that. Okay? At this time, we know that all of Judaism was in compromise. We know that. Right? God's people were let to go, 539, uh, go back to build up the promised land. And very few went. Most stayed because they'd become paganized. They were happy. They were worldly. They were, they were happy to live in Babylon and now Persia. And, you know, worry about the, their, their grandparent, the great-great-grandparent city. And, and uh, you know, think, who cares about that? We're, we're here. So they were compromised. Of the 40,000 that went back, they also, within a generation, became compromised, intermarrying with the uh, uh, Gentile uh, women. So the state of Judaism across the board at this time was one of compromise. Well, guess what? Mordecai was a compromised compromiser. He's worse than the other ones. We read in Esther chapter 3, verse 8, that Haman king uh, said to, uh, to the king, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. Remember the quote? That probably could not be applied to Mordecai. Mordecai had become a judge at the palace in Susa. Now, to get that position in that day, at that time, meant he had to grease some palms, which means bribing. He, and then as a judge, he had to rule according to Persian law, which meant he, didn't, he had to know Persian law very well. So that, that, already, that begins to raise our, our eyebrows. He's a Persian judge, a Jew, but a Persian judge. And then secondly, what's his advice to his, his uh, niece or his cousin, excuse me? His advice to his cousin Esther was, don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. Okay, horribly godless um, advice. So this man, we are, when we meet him, he's not a biblical hero. Okay, not yet. He will become one, but not yet. He's compromised. He's the compromised compromiser. Well, that then leads us to Esther in verse 7. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, whose name comes from the, uh, god, the goddess of sex, Ishtar, from Babylon. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was a beautiful, was beautiful form. She had good figure and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we learn this, and we don't know much about this woman, but what we know is three things from this text. One, she's an orphan. And that day, if you were an orphan, you'd ask the question, who sinned? Her parents or her? Right? Who sinned? Why would this woman... Be orphaned. Had to be a sin, because God helps those who help themselves. That's the mentality of Judaism at this time. Secondly, she's living in the home of Mordecai, whose integrity already is questionable. And thirdly, she's beautiful. Now, that's not going to fit, because if God helps those who help themselves, she shouldn't be so pretty. Her beauty shouldn't be so striking. So what gives there? We don't know. But this is who she is. Now notice verse 8. So it came about when the command of, and, and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of, of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of, of Haggai, who was in charge of the woman. There you go. Her beauty is going to trip her up. Yeah, see, she is cursed because she's so beautiful, she is selected. But we know as a Jew what she'll do. She'll stand firm like Daniel did. You know, Daniel was 12 to 15 years old, same age as this woman, when he went into Babylon. And guess what? He stood firm. He didn't eat. He didn't compromise. So this woman, we would expect, would not eat, would not compromise. But instead, we read, Now the young lady pleased 
Haggai and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So unlike Daniel, unlike Daniel and his three friends, Esther compromised. She ate. She participated. She ate the food. She participated in the the, uh, cosmetics. And she was Princess Charming. She had the ability to please people. Not necessarily a sin, but boy, she, she pleased this man and she became the favorite of this man. Nothing, nothing necessarily immoral there, but there you go. Now this leads up to now verse 10. Um, Esther did not make her people known to her, uh, or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So if we had any questions about her, now we see the real story. Yes, she's just like Mordecai. Do you understand what this means? This means that she could not practice Judaism. So unlike the many other compromised Jews in that day, they all practiced their Judaism. That's what made them distinct and unique, which made um, Haman hate them even more. But not so Mordecai and certainly not so Esther. She kept her identity hidden. Which means, think of it, if you saw a Christian who never went to church, never read the Bible, never openly prayed, never, ever, ever referenced God, what would you say? You'd say, they're they're not probably very healthy. That was this woman. Now, she becomes a biblical hero by the end. But at this point, she's a compromise. So when we come to this scene, this set, Scene two, and we look at, we are, we are introduced firsthand to these two people, Mordecai and, and Esther. We're, we're, we're looking at this going, oh man, is this going to be how God's going to protect his people? No way. No way. You wouldn't guess it. You'd think not, maybe someone like Moses, give us Daniel, you know, give us Gideon. But these two, these two compromise compromisers, no way. Well, what's behind door number three? Let's look at the next scene. Because there's, some, there's, some, there, there's this beautiful thing here, guys, that preserves God's people. What is it? Well, let's go door number three. A go-figure moment. 15. Now, when the king, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except that Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, Princess Charming. Now, is that going to enable her to succeed there? Will she be chosen the queen? To be part of his harem would be awful. But to become queen, that would be amazing. That's called power. Well, notice with me verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month Tabeth, which is four years after chapter 1, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all of the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Brothers and sisters, how many, how many more faithful Jewish families are suffering during this time. And somehow this woman's being promoted to the queen. Her looks are what got her in this bind, but now her glowing personality exalts her to the queen. At this point, you might go, well, probably that may be the key how that God's going to deliver his people. But think of it. This would be like, guess who's president? This, this religious 
person. He's a Christian. He's, he actually goes to a Catholic church. And he's a, he's a you wouldn't think, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not impressed by Robert Kennedy. He was a womanizer. That's Esther. She's a compromised religious person. She's, she's going to deliver God's people? At this point, you're probably thinking, there's nothing I've seen. In fact, you're going to say, I don't believe any of this is what's going to deliver God's people. How could God use any of this mess to deliver any of us? And at this point, you don't even want to read uh, the next box, but there is a next box or next door. Scene four. So maybe we should go to it because those three can't be it. So we go to scene four. And when we go to scene four, we read this strange story that doesn't seem to fit chapter two or chapter three. In fact, most preachers that I have, have heard on this chapter do not preach this section with chapter two. They leave it for chapter three. And it doesn't even fit in chapter three. Why? It just doesn't fit. It's thrown in there and it means nothing. Watch me. Or watch it. 19. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. This either means this was before she was selected queen and all the virgins were brought before the king a second time or this was after she was queen and all the virgins were brought before the king to show how Esther was superior. Those are the two ideas behind this phrase in the commentators. So, and the, when the young virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. He was on duty. He was judging at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made, her known, made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had uh, commanded her. No, uh, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. So this is just a status update. He's working, he's dutifully working at the gate, judging all the different complaints coming before the king. Esther's either in the harem or she's queen. We don't know, but this is life as now normal. Verse 21. In those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he's on duty. Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the, the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They wouldn't be the first, they wouldn't be the last. In 14 short years after this very moment, Ahasuerus would be um, assassinated by the uh, captain of his bodyguard. So 14 years later, the same thing's going to happen. This happened a lot in the ancient world. A lot of people want to kill the uh, kings, and, and here we've got two of them. Bigthon and Teresh, two Persians who we know nothing about, and really don't care about. And why are we telling this story? I don't know, but we'll just keep on going. Verse 22. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on, gall on gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So again, most preachers skip this. It's not relevant to the wonderful story that we're telling here, especially if you think es Esther and Mordecai are great people at this point. But brothers and sisters, if you had to ask, if you had to answer the question, which is the most important element of this chapter which points to the redemption, to the preservation and protection of God's people, what would it be? Would it be the beauty pageant? Would it be Esther's choice as queen? What is it, was it hiding her, her name? What would God use? And I'm telling you, if you're living this time, you'd never dream it was, the, it was scene four. But it turns out it's scene four. And if you know the, the story, you're going to think right now, oh, I know what it was. It was the fact that Mordecai overheard them, told it to Esther, who told it to the king. And they were then hanged. That's what's going to save God's people. And if that's what you think, you're wrong again. 
You know the thing, the thing that delivers God's people? Go to chapter 6, verse 1. During the night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. That book is the book referenced in verse 23. You know what saved God's people? The fact that, to, that, that an unnamed scribe, at some strange time we do not know, recorded what Mordecai did in the presence of the king. That is what would be what saves God's people. You'd never guess it. You see how mysterious God's providence is? I mean, you and I are going to make a Hollywood movie. It, it would be, it has to be Esther, you know. Esther on that throne. It's not what God used to deliver his people. When we get there in chapter 6, it's phenomenal. God used to deliver his people this scribe who wrote and inscribed on a piece of, of scroll or a tablet, who knows, probably scroll, um, a scroll saying what happened. That's what would deliver God's people. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that, that all of the elements of this book and this chapter are not important. They're all important to the story. Matthew chapter 10, Not a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. Everything in this book, from Mordecai and Esther's compromised state, Xerxes' bankrupt personality, the court politics, as well as the actions of, of a madman, um, Haman, the position that Esther acquired as queen in Persia, and more. None of those are not important. God's going to use them all to protect his uh, people. But the uh, issue, that which would be the catalyst to the protection in this entire chapter is what you and I would have never guessed and what most preachers miss. And that is the fact what Mordecai did was recorded in this book. Isn't that incredible? I don't know if you find that amazing, but you and I could live during this time, watch all of this at first-hand witness, being told God's going to preserve his people, not knowing how, and you would have never guessed that in a thousand years. I wonder how much of your life that's going on. Little do you know that, that yeah, well, Greg, well, why, why get up every day? Why do these things? You don't know, brothers and sisters, what God's going to do and how he's going to do with what you do. But God does. That's why in his providence, in his care, he calls us to faithfulness. Because, brothers and sisters, God's providence, how he works his will, is mysterious to us. You and I are going to think, man, I know how it's going to happen. You know, my uh, parents are not saved. I'm going to go to them and I'm going to do all the, I'm going to make it just this perfect scene and I'm going to, or I want to get, you know, engaged and I'm going to do all these perfect things. I, all these different things that we do that we think are the, are the key. We want, we look for these glorious, grand things like turning water into wine. That, there you go. That's what needs to, to happen. These fantastical things like, like the sun standing still. Or, or like water parting, right? Those are the things that God uses to bring about his purpose. And those are the things that you and I look for on a daily basis. We want the fantastical. When brothers and sisters, God's providence is worked out in the minutia of life. From one moment to one a moment, you never know when you just crossed the threshold of the most important, or better yet, you just took the most important step of your entire life. You don't know that. Because God's providence is 
mysterious. And that's the point of chapter 2. That's where this fits in the overall story of this book. It demonstrates this glory. It's, it's written because of verse 23, the very end. This was recorded. Now, this sets us up for the rest of the story. So we've got to know who Mordecai is and Esther. We've got to see what's going to happen there. And what we just read is all important. None of it's not important. But the catalyst was something you and I would never guess. All right. Um, that's what this uh, theme is. However, we, we, we are called to read this chapter in light of the overall theme of this book and in light of God's kingdom. Because that's the comparison. This, in comparison to God's kingdom, that's why Esther's written. When we do that, there are multiple things we might take by way of application. So let's transition the time that we got left to, I'm going to give you four points of application, but there are so many more that we could see here. Okay, when we look at this passage redemptively through the eyes of redemption, through the eyes of God's redemptive kingdom, what do we see when we look at Esther 2? Well, a couple things stand out. Number one, would you notice with me, in this chapter we see a contrast between man's anger and God's. Chapter uh, 2, verse 1, after these things when the king... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had uh, subsided, okay, his anger ended. Guess what, brothers and sisters? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, his anger never ends. What a contrast. With man, man's anger is flippant, is um, uh, capricious. God's anger is not uh, capricious. God's anger is eternal. And because it's eternal... Anyone who sins, their sin is stored up. The anger that that sin has is stored up. Romans chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What this means, brothers and sisters, this gives us, as God's people, one, we know God's anger was vented on Jesus Christ for my sins. So praise be to God. He'll never be angry with you again. It was all directed toward Jesus. But second, this gives us grace and compassion to live in this world. Or better yet, it makes us live in this world with grace and compassion. Because you look at, at the bad guy. Whoever you think the bad guys are, the bad guys who you go, oh, you know, I just wish I could have them in my presence. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for the bad guys. They're, 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 God's storing up wrath for the day of wrath and revelation. They're storing it up. So we need to pray for these people. God's anger, unlike King Hazareth, doesn't abate. It either will be vented upon them, justly so, or upon Jesus Christ, where we are justly forgiven. Secondly, would you notice in this chapter, we see the contrast between Xerxes' bride and Christ's bride. I love this. What was the qualification, the only qualification, in chapter 2 for the bride of Xerxes? What was it? Say it. That'd be beautiful. What a contrast to Christ's bride. You know the difference between Ahasuerus and Christ? Ahasuerus would only take a beautiful woman. Jesus Christ makes his bride beautiful. He made you beautiful, brothers and sisters. He doesn't, he doesn't wait around for you to do something that makes him, ooh, now that's beautiful. That, that's pleasant to me. Therefore, I'll bless you. That's not how our God works. Jesus Christ makes you beautiful. Listen to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Brothers and sisters, 
unlike Ahasuerus, your king is in the business of making you beautiful. He chose you when you weren't beautiful. And he's in the business of making you beautiful. So that get this, because of that, there's nothing you can do that could ever make you not beautiful before God. Incredible. Notice, uh, thirdly, in this chapter, we see God's choice when it came, comes to his servants and bring about his holy will. Who does God use? We, te- we tend to think God uses, well, not sinners like me. He wouldn't use me, but he uses great people, you know, like Moses and David and, and you know, all these great heroes of the faith. That's who he uses. Brothers and sisters, that was God's people at this time. They were, none of them were heroes. None of them were, were moral standouts. They were all compromised. And this book's written to let them see, brothers and sisters, God, you are not beyond God's ability to use or God's care or God's uh, concern. They thought they were. That's why God's name's not mentioned in this book. This book shows how God's people felt about God. God was not existent in their life. He couldn't be. I'm not worthy. We've compromised. We've fallen way too far. God could never bless us. He's this far off God, not a part of our lives. That doesn't mean we're not Jewish. That doesn't mean we don't go through the Jewish stuff. But God is so separate, that's why his name's not not referenced here. It's to show how God's people thought of God at this time. But what do we learn from this book? Eventually, God's going to use Esther, and he's going to use Mordecai, and he's going to use all of these people. Brothers and sisters, you're never beyond God's use in his kingdom. Ephesians 2, God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, not unworthy, yet God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 adds to it. It's not up there. Listen to it. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many who were according to the flesh, nor, nor mighty, nor noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the, the things which are strong. If you're weak, ignoble, if you find yourself saying, man, I'm beyond the pale of God caring about me or using me, you couldn't have been more wrong. This book shows us very clearly who God's going to use. He didn't use just compromised Jews. He used compromised, compromised Jews. Do, do, uh, do you actually think that you're at a point in your life God could never... You know what? God's, God's blessings passed you by because of your sin, because of what you've done, because of what you think or what you... God, God could never use me. I'm beyond. Brothers and sisters, you're completely wrong. Because Jesus Christ is your Savior. You are beautiful in God's eyes. He's made you beautiful. And your sin has not made you unbeautiful. You're beautiful before God. Because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And lastly, in this chapter, finally, we discover God's providence is indeed mysterious. I won't say a whole lot more other than to say, brothers and sisters, because of our default programming, which believes God helps those who help themselves, we tend to miss God's working when it comes to our lives. We're very earthbound. We believe it's, it's all that's going on and God only helps those who help themselves. Therefore, if I am not helping myself, if I'm sinning or doing these things, God, God, God's plan and purpose for me must be done. That is so, so wrong. 
Isaiah chapter 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My, my ways declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's why God's, God's province is mysterious. It's above and beyond us. That does not mean, though, that God's ways are unknowable. Rather, it means that they are not innately intuitive to us as sinners. I'll say it again. It's not that we can't understand it, but it's not innately intuitive to us as sinners. We don't naturally understand God's providence. For us, the race is to the swift, the battle to the skilled warrior, blessings to the wise, and wealth to the worthy. And yet, what do we read in God's uh, providence? Ecclesiastes 9, I again saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, neither is the bread to the wise, nor the wealth to the discerning or favor to men of ability. That's not how God works. So what do we to therefore live our lives and, and, and focus our lives on, brothers and sisters? Trusting God. Brothers and sisters, when you cannot see where God is leading you. Trust his heart. That's the message of Esther chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. This incredible passage, that account that occurred 2,500 years ago, yet is as, as, as new and rich to us this, this morning as we looked upon it and entered in by faith. Father God, we, we confess, we look at a chapter like this and we would have never have dreamt that you would bring about your, your, your protection for your people in, in the way that you do here. But Lord, it just makes us sit back in awe and wonder and glory as we know you're a good God. And therefore, Lord, while we may not understand the way your way may be mysterious to us, Nevertheless, O Lord, we know what you've given us. You've given us your word. You've given us, therefore, your stated will. Give us the grace, O Lord, not to major in that which we cannot see or to be frightened by many a fear, but to be a people who would trust the character of you, our God, and follow as you lead through your word. God, we pray you do that work of grace in us. We pray unto your glory and namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.